everybody. This is Josh Levitsky. I'm a transplant hepatologist at Northwestern in Chicago, and I'm also a deputy editor for AJT. And I'd like to welcome you all to the inaugural podcast for AJT Highlights. And just to remind everyone, this is going to occur monthly, and what we're going to be doing is going through the editor's picks for the top papers in each edition of AJT month by month. And for this month, I'm going to be by myself, but for future months, probably after ATC, I'll be joined by Roz Manon at the University of Alabama to talk about some of the basic science articles and also add some comments about the clinical articles. And we'll be doing this together probably starting in June or July. But for the first one, I'm going to be going over the editor's picks for the May edition of AJT. And this was a really interesting edition with a number of really uh, impactful clinical and basic science papers that I'm going to be discussing today. And I'll be spending just a few minutes on each of these papers, and I hope to not have this go over 25 or 30 minutes as the goal of this is to keep it under 30 minutes. So this can be a podcast you can listen to on your commute or when you have a small period of time, really to kind of um, go over these papers, uh, stimulate you to go into the journal and actually read the papers and also read, of course, the other articles in AJT of that month that are also impactful papers. So let's get started. Uh, The first editor choice article is by uh, William Gunner, who is uh, at the National Surgery Office in Washington, D.C., and also at GW in Washington, D.C. And the title of the article is The VA Transplant Program, A Rebuttal to Criticism and a Look to the Future. And this was selected because it's really an interesting article, but really a response to some of the criticism of the VA transplant programs in general in the U.S., and to dispel some, I think, some misbeliefs about how the VA transplant program works and the what actually the programs offer in terms of being similar to the non-VA programs around the country. And so the premise of this that Dr. Gunner discusses in the beginning is that the VA program, transplant programs have received criticisms in a few different issues, uh, one being that The location of VA transplant centers requires veterans to travel uh, long distances for transplant care and services, that the National Surgery Office provides oversight, that provides oversight, limits the number of active VA transplant centers, that VA policy limits referrals of veterans to the community transplant centers, and also that the VA transplant program does not provide living donor transplant procedures. And so uh, the point of the article is to address each one of these uh, areas and dispel these misconceptions about the VA in all of these areas. Dr. Gunner starts off by really going over the VA transplant program and structure and the process for delivery of care and services, but essentially uh, begins by talking about that the VA has a standard process for veteran referral to the transplant program It involves a secure intranet-based application called Tracer, where the uh, VA candidate is put into all the data 
And this is sort of where all of that is housed. And from there, the transplant candidate process for getting a transplant is opened up. And so it's a nice introduction. But then he dives right into the fact that the, the belief is that because there are only uh, there are a limited number of VAs around the country, and I should mention in Table 1 goes over a nice list of uh, where these VAs are and in what cities and what organ transplants are being done in each of the VAs. But um, the, the belief is that, and probably from the community, that the fact that veterans do have to travel to veterans transplant centers, that this may affect their access to transplant or outcomes. And presents data that really the the fact that there is travel still does not affect certain things like time to transplantation, mortality on the waste, wait list, or post-transplant survival. And when broken down into 100 to 300 miles, 300 to 500, and greater than 500, there are really no differences in pre- and post-transplant survival. And so that uh, really does tell us that the VA is doing a good job, even though there are limited numbers of VAs that the patients are getting access to transplant and having good outcomes. The second issue is that, that the NSO, which is the National Service uh, Surgery Office, clearly there's been a question about whether it determines the number and location of VA transplant centers, and it clearly does not. This is really a long process that goes through the uh, a number of different checkpoints and ultimately makes it to the Undersecretary of Health to approve or deny the activation of proposed programs. The third point is that, which I think is really important, is that the VA has authority to refer veterans for community care. There was something called the Mission Act, which mandated VAs to authorize community care when access or distance thresholds were, were met for veterans' care and services. And this has allowed veterans to go to community care when they're not able to go back to the VA through a contracting process. And this is going to um, continue, and uh, it's just that there's a process by which the VAs make contracts with community care transplant services that need to be done and approved by the VA center. But it's routinely done and veterans can get community care when they can't get access to the VA. And finally, there's a brief mention at the end that VA transplant programs do perform living donor transplant procedures while he recognizes that it's a smaller percentage than in the community, about 9.4% of kidney transplant procedures this is still being done, and the, the idea is to expand this within the VAs. He does not mention living donor liver transplant. Uh, I'm not aware of VAs doing this, but certainly that's something for an area of growth. So I think this is a really nice piece on the VA transplant process, uh, what is being done, and also to just show that veterans are getting a similar care and being put on the wait list and transplanted in comparison to the general population. Next article was, is entitled Liver Transplantation for Hepatitis C Virus, Non-Viremic Recipients with HCV Viremic Donors by Allison Kwong at Stanford with a number of authors and Paul Kuo at Stanford being uh, the corresponding author. And uh, David Goldberg and I in this journal wrote an editorial on this paper because this is um, actually kind of a seminal article in liver transplantation. We know that a number of centers are transplanting hep C viremic 
donors into non-viremic recipients. The Thinker paper from Penn Group and um, a recent New England Journal article for cardiac thoracic transplant. Uh, This is really kind of the first paper for liver transplantation being done with this. So we go through about 10, actually 10 patients, who uh, seven of whom had a prior history of hepatitis C, but were treated pre-transplant, and three who never had hepatitis C. And all of them received HCV viremic donors under a consent process pre-transplant. And all the patients cleared the virus. They were started on antiviral therapy at a median time from transplant of 43 days. So there was uh, some delay in getting insurance coverage for starting therapy. But regardless, uh, with a number of different regimens, 12 to 24 weeks, in general, all the patients became non-viremic and did not have hepatitis C in the long term. Uh, That said, there are a few points of caution. Um, Three of the patients had acute rejection, a couple of them quite significant with antibody-mediated rejection. I believe all of them resolved, but it brings up the point of HCV, particularly if it's not treated soon enough, may stimulate rejection or antibody-mediated processes. It's possible in that time period that there could have been reduction in immunosuppression. Ultimately, this um, paper was really important because it was the first series in liver transplant. Certainly other groups are doing this, and this is being expanded. shows that viral outcomes are are excellent. And, of course, patients need to be robustly consented pre-transplant. I think the rejection interest is... Uh, issue is interesting. They're seeing this in other organs, and it's likely that the timing to antiviral therapy needs to be as soon as possible to prevent any complications. Uh, Next paper is um, from the UCSF group, and this was a pediatric paper entitled Functional Status at Listing Predicts Waitlist and Post-Transplant Mortality in Pediatric Liver Transplant Candidates. This is by uh, Emily Perito, John Bucavallis, and Jennifer Lai. And this was actually first study that I've seen that addresses functional impairment and frailty in the pediatric transplant population. And much has been written, especially from this group, about adult liver transplant candidate frailty being a predictor of preoperative mortality and also postoperative outcomes. But Little has been written about the pediatric population. And so fortunately, this study was, or the authors of this study took advantage of the fact that functional status was recorded within a large uh, SRTR database. And this this score uh, or this scale of functional status is called the Lansky Play Performance Scale on Table 1, and it goes from 10 to 100, 100 being fully active and 10 being no play, does not get out of bed. And the authors hypothesized that functional status would be associated with wait lists, but not post-transplant mortality. And so uh, they divided the risk categories of the recipients between the scale of 10 to 40, which was the worst uh, functional status, to 50 to 70 and 80 to 100 to look at pre-transplant and post-transplant mortality. This was of note only done in children ages 1 to 17 because I think the scale could not be done at a chi- with a child under 1 years old. 
And so they um, looked at 3,250 liver transplant candidates. Overall, 62% had good functional status with scores of 80 to 100. A quarter had moderate impairment at 50 to 70. And 13% had severe impairment at 10 to 40. And so um, the first thing they looked at was uh, pre-transplant weightless mortality. And they found that children with an LPPS score of 10 to 40 were more likely to die on the wait list than those with higher functional status in both univariate and multivariate analyses. So it was a higher weightless mortality than those who had children who had very low functional status on the wait list. And then, um, you know, they were predicting that post-transplant graft loss and mortality would not be affected by pre-transplant functional status. But this was the opposite was shown that the worst functional status pre-transplant had the highest rate of post-transplant mortality. And I think if you look in the paper, figure two shows the survival uh, on the wait list and then post-transplant patient graft survival. And you can definitely see a decrement in survival pre and post-transplant. Now, the authors do say that this really shouldn't be how livers should be allocated or this should be included in allocation because of the higher risks. And of course, you know, weightless mortality and post-transplant mortality may or may not be connected fully. But this certainly is something that should be explored further. Uh, this score, this LPPS score, is not a widely used metric in pediatric hepatology. And the authors feel that there needs to be more objective, accurate tools to measure functional status uh, above and beyond this score, because the score may be just a marker, but really it might be more specific things in terms of frailty or sarcopenia or growth that are affecting these patients' pre- and post-trans mortality. So I think it's really important that this is studied in the pediatric population as it hasn't been, and I'm sure the authors will be doing more work in this area, and others are encouraged to really see if specific measures of frailty and sarcopenia are present and also predict mortality. But if anything can be done about it, like prehabilitation and rehabilitation to decrease this mortality. Next paper is a kidney transplant paper by uh, Nan Cavell and colleagues in Australia. It's entitled The Clinical and Pathological Significance of Borderline T-Cell Mediated Rejection. And this paper is of interest because borderline rejection in kidney transplantation has long been known to be an entity, but the clinical significance of it uh, has been uncertain, mainly because it's known that um, a number of these cases will resolve on its own, but some do progress to full rejection and can lead to graft uh, problems. And so this group had uh, looked back at a number of their biopsies over uh, the long over a long period of time, uh, nearly a thousand biopsies, and uh, compared borderline rejection biopsies to normal biopsies and acute T cell mediated rejection. And a number of different analyses were performed uh, to look first at the, the histopathology, the um, treatment of borderline rejection, and the outcomes of renal function in that population compared to the others, resolution of inflammation, the progression over time to 
interstitial fibrosis, sort of like a chronic rejection, and also look long-term at things like antibody-mediated outcomes and graft loss and mortality related to uh, borderline uh, rejection. And overall, they found that borderline rejection did have a correlation with renal dysfunction, chronic tubular atrophy, progressive tubular injury with fibrosis, increased subsequent acute rejection, allograft failure, and patient mortality. And uh, they noted that while borderline rejection resolved in about two-thirds of untreated cases, um, the other one-third had persistence in inflammation, progressed to acute rejection, in some of these cases, graft fibrosis and graft failure. So uh, the authors certainly made the claim that borderline rejection in kidney transplantation is likely important. It's something to follow. Some cases, um, probably more than 50% will resolve, but um, can progress to more acute and chronic forms of rejection and graft dysfunction and graft failure. And so this is um, something that definitely needs to be examined further, perhaps with um, biomarkers that can uh, detect this um, as biopsies are being done at centers by protocol, but certainly to detect this type of inflammation that is on the milder end, but that can progress would be important. And then the the final uh, three papers are basic science papers with clinical relevance, uh, the, the first one is by Adam Sang uh, at Stanford et al. And this was actually, this paper actually, one of the figures made the cover of the May journal. Um, and this is really interesting because the authors are tackling the issue of EBV PTLD and trying to come up with better ways to treat uh, EBV PTLD above what we have now, which of course involves reducing immunosuppression using anti-B lymphocyte antibodies or chemotherapy, which can have effects on the graft um, leading to rejection or increased uh, complications related to lymphodepletional therapy. And so the, the, what it was studied here was the mTOR inhibitor pathway, which we know is related to, which is active in EBV uh, lymphoma. But one of the, um, the, the whole signaling pathy, pathway is PI3K, AKT, and mTOR. And uh, the authors begin by talking about rapamycin, which only partially inhibits one of the mTORs, mTOR-C1, and doesn't inhibit mTOR-C2 uh, successfully. And both of these are active in the EBV PTLD pathway. The idea being that if immunosuppression could be converted to rapamycin, this might help with PTLD, but certainly the full pathway would need to be blocked. And so um, they did a number of uh, nice studies, uh, mainly some in vitro and in in vivo studies uh, involving cell populations of EBV, PTLD, looking at these pathways and actually using a couple, a few small molecular inhibitors Called that CAL101, MK2206, and AZD2014 that specifically can block the mTOR C2 pathway and also rapamycin, which can block mTOR 
uh, C1. And the idea is that the combination of these, these uh, small molecules may be the best therapeutic approach to treating PTLD. And they were able to find out in this study, testing these molecules in combination, that they synergistically with rapamycin inhibit EBB-positive PTLD cell lines and uh, suppresses tumor growth both in vivo and in a mouse, uh, I'm sorry, both in vitro and also a mouse model in vivo. And then they looked and found that cardiac transplant, in a cardiac transplant model, these molecules prolong graft survival and can in- inhibit rejection. So while this is preclinical, certainly these small molecules need to be developed uh, and eventually tried in clinical trials to add to mTOR inhibitors to see if that can fully block PTLD without having to reduce immunosuppression or give um, more toxic lymphodepletional therapy. So very exciting things to come with this. We hope to see clinical papers in the future. Next paper is uh, entitled Prolongation of Allograft Survival by Passenger Donor Regulatory T-Cells by Harper, N.S. Harper et al. This is a uh, group out of uh, Cambridge, the Netherlands, and uh, University College in London. And these were, um, these were studies to look at, very elegant studies to look at donor T-cells that are within the graft that actually have been shown to cause rejection. And uh, now they were looking at the regulatory T-cells, NT-regs within the the graft that could maybe regulate the immune system, inhibit rejection, and prolong allograft survival. So just in brief, they used a human lung transplant patients to basically detect donor CD4 T lymphocytes after the transplant. They report on that, showing that they persist in the circulation. And then the group then subsequently looked at the leukocyte filters that came from perfusing human kidneys and found that um, they were able to detect donor Tregs in those circuits so that uh, certainly a a percentage of those lymphocytes that come out of those circuits are actually Tregs, showing that you can actually isolate donor Tregs from the perfusion. And then finally, they uh, did a nice elegant model, a murine model, that found that Treg depletion resulted in augmented humoral immunity and accelerated allograft rejection. And this was actually most important in the donor-derived Tregs. They actually prolonged allograft survival more effectively than recipient Tregs. And so the idea here is that there are donor Tregs that are within the graft that could be isolated for therapeutic uses to maybe give the recipients after the transplant to regulate the immune system. And this sort of goes against, not really against, but is different a different approach than what is currently being done, which is to isolate recipient Tregs and expand them and give them to the recipients to uh, regulate the immune system, prevent rejection, and allow for tolerance. This group seems to feel that isolating the donor Tregs and maybe expanding them and giving them to the recipients would be a better approach. Again, more to come there, but very exciting. And finally, last but not least, a brief communication by Victoria Rael, R-A-E-L, from 
the University of Chicago. This is uh, Dr. Maria Luisa Alegre's uh, group. And this was really interesting because uh, it dealt with the issue of exercise and how that might modulate the immune system. And they did a, a, a skin model, a skin transplant model with uh, rat transplants and found that uh, exercise prolonged graft survival. The ones that the rats that were regularly exercised and got transplanted had prolonged graft survival. But this uh, was kind of independent of the allo response because actually exercise increased some of these responses and actually enhanced rather than reduced proliferation uh, in the exercise group compared to the control mice. And so despite the exercise doing this and actually increasing the allo response, graft survival was prolonged. And so exercise must be doing something to modulate this. Um, and this further needs to be explored. The, the authors bring up the possibilities of whether catecholamines from exercise could be leading to prolonged allograft survival or whether there may be other inhibitory cells such as regulatory macrophages or myeloid-derived suppressor cells that may be promoted by exercise or just that exercise and promoting overall fitness may enhance the graft's resistance to rejection. So certainly uh, a plug for doing for exercising after a transplant. And uh, of course, this is just a, this was a basic science model, but it'd be very interesting to test this in human transplantation. And uh, we will certainly continue to do this every month. Very excited for the next issue, which will be in June. Um, this will also be shown front and center at the American Transplant Congress. And subsequent to that, I hope to be joined by Roz Manon, to, so we can split the papers and talk about clinical translational basic science, basic science key articles in AJT, and um, we'll see you next time in June. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.